Welcome to the New Books Network. The poet and philosopher David White writes, To feel as if you belong is one of the great triumphs of human existence, and especially to sustain a life of belonging and to invite others into that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're pleased to have Joseph E. David on the show today to talk about his new book, Kinship, Law, and Politics, An Anatomy of Belonging. Joseph E. David is an associate professor of law at Sapir Academic College in Israel. He was a visiting professor of law at Yale Law School and at the Program in Judaic Studies at Yale University. His research focuses on law and religion, legal history, comparative law, and jurisprudence. Joseph David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Kinship, law, and politics explores the meaning of belonging. Why do you think the question of belonging is particularly important and particularly fraught in the 21st century? Well, I think uh, the concern about belonging is uh, so existential and so fundamental in all periods. And it all emerges from the fact that uh, humans living alone in solitude is considered as a problem. And I think nowadays, even more than before, the fact that we could easily attach ourselves to various frameworks, we could recreate our belongings, that actually makes our belonging something that we have better ways to contemplate about and to understand it even better. So belonging is not only to our clan, family, or kinship, belonging to the society. We could have our belonging to other societies which, which we never met before via the internet and other cyberspaces um, opportunities. So belonging is a long-standing concern which we have nowadays much better capacities to deal with. In both biblical and Greek traditions, belonging is the ancient alternative to solitude. What, if anything, is the relationship between the vagueness of belonging in contemporary society and the increase in loneliness in society? Mm. So, as I said, I think we have nowadays much more opportunities to create our belongings. And we have also overlapping opportunities to belong to. We belong to uh, um, one kind of society on some aspects in our lives, but we could also have other um, ways to belong to another frameworks. So, I think um, even though we could still have the very same concern about loneliness today. But belonging is not only about loneliness. Belonging is about also about, uh, to, about meaning of our existence. To what kind of networks are we part of? To what kind of people are we um, having something in common to share with? So I think that belonging is even more than the problem of loneliness nowadays as before. You talk about two different views of belonging, uh, the essentialist view on the one hand, 
and I guess what we could call the functionalist, behaviorist, or uh, imagined useful illusion view of sameness. Tell us about those two views. Well, uh, I think that they caught me between essentialism and uh, functionalism, or, or you know, social constructions are not 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 peculiar or to the topic of belonging. But I think when it comes to belongings, and we think about uh, um, various uh, attempts to understand belongings through the 20th century, this dichotomy is playing a very pivotal role. So, for example, when psychologists um, in the mid-20th century convinced us to think about our um, our selfness and our belongings in terms of something which is much more essential or or inherent to our personality, to our to our soul, to our self, um, I think they just followed the same tracks as in other cases where where we thought about. Um, um, uh, social features as something more essential. But uh, the more we think about other possibilities to understand these features, like a matter of narrative, a matter of imagination, um, therefore, on, on the one hand, we have much more ways, much more flexibility to understand these features. But on the other hand, it also takes us away for something which is much more stable. So, for example, when you think about, you know, how how gender issues were approached in previous times, uh, well, the I, I guess the traditional way was to approach it in essentialist terms. So you could be either male or female. But once we understand it as something more complex, we have a varieties of gender identities to think about much more than the the uh, dualist uh, um, option of being a male or female. So the same thing also with belonging. Either we could think about belonging in essentialist terms and it's much more restricting, it's much more fixed, and also then therefore we could also talk about, uh, about crises related to belonging. On the other hand, when we think about belonging as something more functional, something more imaginative, I think we could manipulate it more. We could be much more involved in describing our belongings and changing our belongings and feeling much more control about our belongings. But again, I think we also have to think about a combination of both. So in some, in, in some sort, in some sort of ways, our imaginative belongings is also becoming more stable and more fixed, even if it's not essential in the very rigorous sense. But um, I think we, we still have to tune the differences between the two options, either imaginative or essentialist, and to see how we could work with these two, two uh, categories uh, to describe better our, 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 our subjects. So uh, are you saying that belonging and identity are really the same or that they overlap? Or talk, talk a little bit about the relationship between those two concepts. Well, thank you. I, I think that uh, this is a very, uh, very interesting question for myself because it took me a bit 
to be sensitive to the possible difference between identity and belongings. And indeed, we tend to treat them both as overlapping concepts. We talk about identity politics as if it is the, the politics of belonging. But I don't think that the very, the, that they're the same in all aspects. In many ways, I think that belonging is much more fundamental than identity. I think that our belonging is one of the components of our identity and not vice versa. So belonging, I think it's much more fundamental. I think it has much to do with um, with objective um, uh, feelings um, and, and facts. It's, much, it's something more factual rather than identity. And identity itself has, I think, a very interesting history and mainly a new history, mainly in the past century. As some, as some, some, some thinkers have pointed out, identity became um, a key concept only in, in, in modern times. And in fact, only in the mid-20th century, mainly, mainly under the impact of the works of some psychologists like Freud and 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 of course um, 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 uh, Erickson, Erickson and Adler, yeah. right? And, right. And, and and therefore and and from there it moved also into the philosophical discourse, even though most of the philosophers would admit that. But it became an issue only in later times. And the basic idea that Erickson spoke about is 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 actually also. Um, um, based on the heritage of modern Enlightenment ideas and also some Protestant ideas. So identity for Erickson, for example, was the true inner self um, of every and each individual. So here we have already the inwardness, we have the self, we have the genuine self, um, uh, and as the philosopher Charles Taylor uh, made the point, it's also about the ideals of um, authenticity and and so on. But if we think about identity at the 21st century, I think we are we are exposed to a different idea of identity, which is something that has to do with information and data. So, for example, nowadays. Our identity is reduced to data and information, and it is totally, or maybe not totally, but at least to a large extent, is detached from the idea of the self. We can think about digital identity. We can think about um, uh, identity fraud. We can think about identity as something that third parties have, like governments and, and, and market forces, which is nothing to do with our inwardness or in our inner self. So I think that nowadays it's much, it's much more easier to distinct between the two ideas of belonging and identity and think about them separately. Nevertheless, I think the complex relation between the two and how they, are, they, they interplay uh, through our intellectual history, it is fascinating and it is still there. I mean, they are not totally different ideas. They absolutely have some relations to each other, but I, I suggest to think about them separately. I suggest to think about identity as a different concern from the idea of belonging. Okay. That, that gives us a perspective 
to through which to look at your work. And now you examine belonging from the external uh, perspective of law. So let's look at, at that. Um, Judaism and Islam are conventionally thought of as law-based religions uh, and their adherents identify with and feel they belong to those points of view, those religious practices, because they conform with the law. And as well, they inherited uh, those identities. Um, You have a revisionist perspective on these issues of uh, whether these two religions are law-based religions. Tell us about that. Yes, indeed. I think I, I, I also embraced initially the, you know, the, the, the common wisdom that Judaism and Islam are legalist religions. And therefore, you know, there are so many similarities and approximities between them that that's what makes them so interesting. But nevertheless, the more I dig into that, I realize that this is indeed a modern idea, or more precisely, an idea that came out from early modern times, mainly under the influence of the the theology of the Reformation. Um, you know, um, Martin Luther obviously contributed a lot to this image of Judaism and Islam, which he considered as legalist religion. By the way, they were not they were not the only legalist religions from his perspective. Because Catholicism and paganism were also considered as legalist religions. And this is only to emphasize why Protestant approach to Christianity was the true religion, which is not a legalist one, rather a religion of grace and love and so on. So the more I thought about it, and I asked myself, for example, which one of the medieval thinkers in Judaism would embrace that typology of Judaism as a low-based religion. And the more I thought about it, the more I digged into the text, I realized that none of the known Jewish thinkers of pre-modern times, starting from, I don't know, from Philo to Maimonides and, and others, none of them would subscribe to the view that the essence of the, the, the Judaism as a religion is being a low-based religion. And therefore, I thought, and, and my, 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 my investigations led to, my, to the conclusion that, indeed, the identification of Judaism as a low-based religion, and likewise with Islam, is part of a modern ethos. We have some... We have some roots to these ideas in ancient times, if we go back to the first century Christian thinkers. But this was obviously not the dominant view through Middle Ages, and it was not the view that was embraced by the thinkers of those religions. But since it was suggested as a a typology for religions in early modern times, it was not only embraced by you know, the followers of, of Martin Luther, but also by Jewish thinkers who also adopted this conception that Judaism is a low-based religion. And starting from Reform thinkers to ultra-Orthodox thinkers, they all share the idea that below is the, is the core 
component of Judaism as religion. So my revisionist view of that is to ask, actually, what function this dichotomy between law-based religions and love-based religions played and what kind of response to what kind of necessities was it that it played such a crucial role and 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 my my view which is also shared by other thinkers uh, and other uh, scholars who uh, who reached to the same conclusion by treating different materials is that indeed the identification of Judaism with the law and or legalist religion is something which is not consistent through the history of ideas in the Jewish tradition, and it is part of a, diff- a modern concern about, I would say, mapping the identities with regard to religion, which religions are in what relations to other religions and what are the components that make these divisions. So I, I termed it in, in, in a different occasion as the economy of religious identities or religious differences. It was part of the need to mark the differences between different groups or different religions, different communities. Um, nevertheless, it's not part of, I would say, the core theological components of Judaism, to my sense. Okay, that's, that's very clear. And, and when we are talking about law, um, tell us about the difference between territorial jurisdiction, in which laws apply to a specific geographic area, and personal jurisdiction, in which laws apply to individuals based on their belonging to the group right. or their identity. Yeah, well, right. I, I, I thank you for picking that because uh, I'm I'm still fascinated by this fact. You know, it took me to, some time to understand, as a student in law school, that there is other options to think about jurisdiction, not only as a territorial one. Uh, and in fact, the idea of, of of territorial jurisdiction, you know, it's it's starting at the Renaissance times, and it was enhanced in um, um, you know, early modern times of the European political affairs. But obviously, this was not the sole opportunity to think about jurisdiction or, law of, or, or, or the application of the law. And when you think about pre-modern legal system and non-Western legal system, mainly as religious legal system, so they don't actually acknowledge the importance of the territory. So if a person is, uh, you know, under obligation um, to some sort of law, legal system, so usually the territory is not something that marks the limits of this obligation, right? So, um, you know, when we commit an act or transaction or a crime nowadays in one territory, it might not be considered a crime or a valid transaction in another territory. But if you look from, um, um, if, if, from, a, from a religious perspective, a pre-modern religious perspective, when a person is, is, is actually responding to the commands of God or divine authority, usually it's not limited to a specific territory. 
By the way, it comes from a different idea of, of, of legal authority. So, for example, in the biblical um, universe, the biblical normative universe, uh, once the relationships between the Israelites and God are based on a covenant, those, those you know, their commitment to fulfill God's instructions are not limited to his territory because he's considered, you know, the, the master of the universe. And they are committed because they are covenantal relationships between them. So the idea of, of territorial jurisdiction, it, it's quite new. It has to do with uh, redefinition of political sovereignty and authority in, in the, the 17th century and so on. And this is another point where pre-modern and non-Western ideas of jurisdiction clashed with modern ideas of statehood and territorial jurisdiction. Um, in many ways, we are nowadays facing a new shape of this pre-modern concern because the internet, the international law, the globalization as a phenomenon brings back the idea of personal jurisdiction, which overcomes the idea of territorial or state jurisdiction. So in that sense, it's very interesting to see how the whole idea of, of territorial jurisdiction has limits from a, from a broad historical perspective when, we, when it becomes the more, most dominant uh, uh, option of, of, of jurisdiction. And when nowadays it's not enough, we cannot really limit ourselves only to think about territorial jurisdiction. We have to think we are, we are actually forced to accept the idea that jurisdiction is something that uh, is meaningful behind territorial borders and, and, and therefore the personal uh, jurisdiction is coming back again. Um, and it's, it's even more challenging nowadays. That's really interesting that the ideas and the assumptions are, are circular. They, they have come back again. That's, that's true. And actually, we already, even in the secular world, seem to be living under both those ideas of jurisdiction. Um, as you know, since you lived uh, in a different country from the one in which you're a citizen, there are tax implications, even if you're not located to territorially right. in the country, in your, your country of identity. Yes. Right. So um, uh, we, we really have a little bit of overlap of both those legal ideas. So in some, can, religious, can religion and law and identity ever really be separated or separated from history and politics? Well, I, I would I, I would even um, take your question and and divide it to to few. First, I would ask: To what extent do we need to consider the relationship between law and religion, also in terms of identity? Right. Uh, um, mm -hmm. I, I think I think it deserves much more thinking. To what extent do we really need to be troubled by? religious identity, 
uh, obviously it is a major concern nowadays. Um, um, the, the big question is, of course, to what extent a state you know, is responsible or is obliged to 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 provide the conditions for one's identity or to make sure that one's identity is sustainable and flourishing. But I, I, I also suggest to think about it separately because I, I think it's, it's complex enough to think about the relations, relationships between law and religion and let alone the problem of identity. I would only suggest that we could lower down our expectations from identity and even our concerns about identity. Um, you know, there is a very, very interesting uh, poet by Emily Dixon, which I can't remember now, but uh, uh, I think that what she, she suggests there to, is she suggests uh, an experimental thought to give up on our identity. Let's try to live one moment without concern to what we are and why we are, and just you know, we live without this uh, stressing um, concern. I also suggest that in many cases, maybe we should lower down uh, our sensitivities to identity. And that also applies, of course, to the entire discourse of identity politics, which in many ways, um, it has also some effects of paralyzing our, our capacity to to. To, to discuss issues because at some point we cannot say too much about identities of others. I mean, sometimes identity uh, is becoming a trump that we raise up, you know, just respect my identity and therefore yeah. we cannot talk anymore about <clears throat> identity. So I, I also will take that to the relations between law and religion. I think, I think it would it would, it would, we, we could focus on so many issues on the complex relationships between law and religion, even without, even w- while taking out identity. Um, um, and, and you know what, for example, I, I'm not sure that the idea of religious identity is a coherent one. Um, think about religions which as are, are not so sensitive to matters of faith or selfhood. To what extent religious identity is applicable in these cases? I'm not sure about that. And, and I'm not sure that religious, uh, you know, for some believers, religions are about, about, about truth, about the true knowledge, are, are not about identity or or, or sentiments of, of, of identity or, or, or selfness. So I, I think that once we combine questions of religion and law and identity, we also limit our scope of what religion and, and identity are about. Well, that's really That's really an interesting insight. So let's take the conversation down to something that might appear to be simpler, but probably isn't, uh, the fundamental unit of kinship, and that's the family, which always has a relationship to the state or to law. And in Western countries today, family is a, a fluid concept, including many more forms than ever before. Um, 
Why do you think the rise of liberal theory was a watershed moment for the political meaning of the family? Right. Well, um, um, well, yes, I, um, I, I came to this insight uh, after digging into the, the, the basic elements of the political imagination in Western traditions. And it's quite clear, and, and this is a well-known theme, that starting from Aristotle, by the way, uh, and even Plato, uh, that the analogy between family and state is very crucial also to validate politics, but also to shape politics. And in that respect, the imagination of the state as an extended family, which is built from built of various households and families, is 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 actually a very central um, right motif of political Western political thought, up to the point where the imagination between the monarch. And the father was questioned. So thinking about the family as a body, and therefore on the politics as a body, which again, they both have their head, the head of the family, the head of the state. They both have organs, and they both serve each other in a very organic way. This was a very central way to think about politics, and by the way, with 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 the with the support of the church in the Western tradition, you could also see how the other angle of this triangle is not only state, family, but also religion, because the familial imagination also shaped the religious imagination, right? So God right. is is the father. We are, yes. we are his, not only his servants, but also his sons. And by the way, you know, the differences between servant and son is, is, is a very important distinction in the New Testament, but also the combination between them. You know, as we Jews prayed in the high holidays just now, you know, we have the combination of either as servants or as sons and actually we, we we embrace both imageries as being sons and servants both together so this all familiar imagination is so constitutive to the religious imagination and the political one as well so i think the complex relations between the between the systems of 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 metaphors and analogies was crucial to both, and I think the way all three of them were shaped and designed was with some inner dialogue between them. So the family was shaped also upon some political hierarchies, and vice versa. The politics was shaped upon the understanding of what family is. Now, this whole what I what, what I termed as the analogy between the family and the state, I think, came to the point where it was. Straightforwardly questioned in early in early early liberal times, I would say, when, for example, some thinkers ask themselves, to what extent the political leader is indeed the father of the of the citizens, and they even asked 
more than that, to what extent the familiar relationships, the hierarchies within the family are to be understood in terms of parental authority or parental power. And, um, and, and, and this is a moment where so many things melted down and, and other options came out. So, for example, when, when some of the thinkers you know, suggested to think about the family not as constructed around the father, the pater, but something that is functional, that, uh, that is instrumental, and that is a place that should serve the individuals within the family, this is totally a different, anti-traditional approach to the family and also the, to, the, to the political affairs. So I think this moment was also a moment in which the analogy between the state and the family was questioned and therefore also new ways to think about family formats came out. So there is not only one way to understand the family as a framework, not only as a matter of production, not only as a locus of love, not only as something that allows individuals to cultivate and flourish, but, you know, either the combination of both or maybe including other functions of the family. So I think we have the the opportunity to think about not only not only about one way of understanding the family, but on various ways. And it all came out from the idea that the fam- there is no there is not only one way of understanding the family, not only one way to understand politics. These are two, maybe related but distinct realms, which we have to ask straightforward questions about them. How does it serve the individuals? What kind of values are served there? Either autonomy, self-determination, liberty, freedom. All these kinds of questions are asked only in modern liberal contexts and not beforehand. The family was not considered a place of freedom, neither the political arena. Uh, so I, I think... This is another aspect of the birth of liberal thought, um, which is uh, an, uh, which opened the door to think anew about these fundamental environments, uh, which were also sacred. You know, the family was sacred and is still sacred. Uh, uh, and it is considered sacred in, in Western societies. Um, but we have we, we have much more freedom to think to think about it, um, um, it, it through, through varieties of models, not only one. So, uh, do you believe that uh, that modern thought, liberal thought, is uh, presents more of a profound change in in the concept of the family than? let's say, some major changes that happened historically, for example, uh, the outlawing of polygamy or uh, the uh, abandonment of primogeniture? Well, that, that's interesting. I'm not, well, that is very interesting. I'm not sure that I, I could see how the 
struggle for, for, for polygamy is coming into that. But, but I, I wish you just to think about another, another um, case, and that is the, the institution of adoption, for example. In pre-modern times, or in traditional societies, adoption was an, a legal institution which usually was used and practiced to serve the family interests or mainly the interests of the head of the family. So in ancient Rome, when individuals were adopted, they were adopted to serve the family uh, to which they were adopted. Now, in modern times, we think differently about adoption. In Western liberal societies, the first value in which we think about adoption is through the best interest of the child. Namely, that first and foremost, we ask to what extent the whole process of adoption serves the best interest of the child. Um, so it, it doesn't mean that, you know, people do not adopt for, to fulfill their concerns and their wishes and their lack of, of children. But the most and the major concern that we ask before we start the process is to what extent does it serve the best interest of the child? And this is a totally different look about the rule and, and, and the place of the individual even within the family. Beforehand, in pre-modern times, and you don't have to go that far, even in, through the 19th century, adoption was not about about the individuals, but rather about the, uh, the, the, the persons who adopt them and how they serve their interests. So I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I think that polygamy is a very interesting case to think about it, and mainly the insistence on polygamy. Um, and maybe um, the, the question why in Western societies are so stubborn to persist, to, to, to insist on, 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 uh, on, on, you know, um, monogamy. But, yeah. but, um, I think we, we, we might also expect to see more questioning about that format as well. Um, I, even nowadays, I think that uh, just uh, a year ago, even in the state of Utah, they overturned the prohibition about polygamy or maybe softened it a bit. Uh, because, you know, many, when we think about it in terms of liberty and, you know, full consent, um, we are much more deliberated from the traditional, um, monogamous, um, 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 model. Um, but, you know, I think in different issues, we have the changes coming in their own time. So, I, I, I'm not sure that it has to do only with liberalism to think about monogamy as the sole option, but, but, but I would look at, at other, other aspects of family life and how they change through the liberal culture. Well, at the same time as the ideas and assumptions about families are changing, the relationship of family and the state is also changing, as you quote uh, the court is the father of orphans. Um, that says something about the state's relationship right. to the family. 
Can you speak about that? Yes. Well, I, I, I use that, actually. This is a quote from the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, and actually, it is based on some readings in the Talmud, Talmudic uh, maxim, which says the Talmudic maxim was, you know, in cases where there are orphans in the community, young orphans, which cannot take care of themselves. Then, and so in, in those cases, the court steps in and 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 behaves like their father and, and actually takes responsibility, takes parental responsibility upon their these orphans. And, and through later ages, it was extended not only to orphans, but also to some other individuals with disabilities. But when it comes to liberal perspective, I think that sometimes the, the distinction between paternalism and liberalism is becoming more tricky. Because if you think about liberalism only in the sense of states' obligations towards the individuals, therefore you, the, the, the idea of the parental power of the state is becoming as an option. What I'm trying to say is that the liberal, the, the liberal construction of the relationships between the state individuals and the individuals could come up as also a, a style or a mode of paternalism. And I try to show that some genuine liberals are actually find themselves going into that slippery slope of becoming paternalists because they don't trust the traditional family structures that they can take care of the individuals for the best interest. They extend and enhance the state's responsibility towards these individuals, and therefore they justify, by the very same justifications of liberalism, they justify, they justify the state's paternal authority. So I, as, as, as I say, that the, the relationship between liberalism and paternalism is a very tricky and I would say an unsolved issue, an unsolved. We have to make some measures. We have to make some balances. We have to, we have to determine some principles that draw the borderline between liberal concerns and paternal, paternal concerns. Well, that, that is uh, a challenge indeed, and a, and a very current one. In your book, you describe several directions for reestablishing the political significance of the family in the context of liberal thought, um, with its emphasis on individual freedom and autonomy. So I'm going to ask you finally to commit yourself. What, in your opinion, yeah. is the best way to balance the tensions between family and liberal right. values? Right. Uh, well, I think, well, I was trying to, to make the case for that, that the best way to think about the family in our liberal frameworks is as, as an environment, as an environment which enjoys the status of being a political environment. Namely, I think it is important to allow within the so, um, the so intensive political affairs to allow some islands of apolitical environments in which we could enjoy the freedom from politics. 
And in that respect, it also explains why a political environment is, is also important and in, indeed crucial for the development of the individual personality. So in that way, I think the family also serves the politics because it is the breeding ground for individuals. It is a space where individuals could become or could also execute their apolitical existence. And they go back and forth. I mean, it's not only about privacy. It's about being apolitical. And the family in that respect is is fulfilling a political rule because the politics cannot actually sustain when it is a total, when it is applied totally. So I think uh, the balance between political and apolitical environments is crucial for both, but mainly for the politics to allow places to um, to develop and to flourish and to be deliberated from some political expectations and constraints, even from some moral expectations and values like like equality and, and discrimination. I think discrimination could be exercised within the family and it is not considered as a major problem as if it was exercised in the political realm. I'm not saying that it is okay. Obviously, it is not. But it has a different volume. It has a different significance when it is practiced in the political sphere or in the family. Right. I see. Well, Joseph, you've given us a lot to think about, and you've been very generous with your time. Uh, before I let you go, please tell us what you're working on now. Oh, actually, it's quite easy to answer that because I was so intrigued by by the concept that you mentioned beforehand with identity. Uh, the more I worked on belonging, I realized that identity is something that is 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 we take for granted and we don't have a clear concept of it. And as I hinted before, I think that nowadays, mainly in the two past decades, with the rays of technological um, achievements and um, huge databases, I think that our troubles with identity take a different shape. So I'm working now about uh, on identity and the conceptual uh, changes of matters of identity, and in fact, also the morality of identity nowadays, which totally differ, differs from, 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 uh, from our concerns with identity a few decades ago. Well, that is a substantial challenge, and I'll look forward to reading your work on it when it's published. Thank you, Joseph, for your important Thank you, work. Renee. It was, and Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show today. And thank you to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye.